0: Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. I am here with Doug Roberts. Doug officially is the Nevada partner for Panatoni Development Company. I understand you have 34 years of experience, not 33. Yes, sir. Uh, in your role, you've completed more than 50 million square feet of development, and you've got an active pipeline. We were kind of spitballing earlier, maybe estimating around 5.5 million feet that you're currently Actively it's, developing.
1: Yeah, it's probably a little higher than that. I think in mean, Northern Nevada, I think I have two parks that are probably close to three million just alone. So I think it's probably seven or eight total right now, that's in the pipeline, ready to go.
0: And anyone knows Panattoni immediately would probably think about industrial, but your experience is uh, not just industrial, as I understand it, office and retail as well.
1: Yeah, I've other than single family homes, I have built all the other food groups, if you will. I built apartments. I call,
0: them, I call them food groups too.
1: Yeah, we could. I build apartments with another developer, um, but I'd say 95% of my work has been industrial. I built probably 10 or 15 office buildings, but industrial is what I know, and that's what I really like to do.
0: And so you've been named one of the developers of the decade by NAOP Northern Nevada. I didn't know that was a thing, but that's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. You are a member of SIOR, Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. You're the former president and a board member of NAOP Northern Nevada and a member of the CCIM, I imagine the chapter. Yeah. Yep. Founding board member of Nevada, Northern Nevada Childhood Cancer Foundation and past president of the Reno Central Rotary Club. Correct. have been busy.
1: Yeah. I mean, my wife and I have a, a mantra that to, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so we we try our best to... Take the gifts we have in life and give back to community. It it's not always altruistic. Sometimes there's things that you know you do good in the community and people recognize that and they want to make sure that you're taken care of and you know because you're a valued member of the community. But same token, there's needs that we see and we try to fulfill them best we can. So
0: lastly, on the intro, I would add, you are an intellect. It's my observation of you. Hmm. Um,
1: not everybody agrees with that. but <laughs> Fine.
0: Uh, I think you have a unique brand of—I would describe it as—intellectual, dryish humor. All right, I'll go with that one. And you know, I was, re- I was like thinking about this. I'm like, you're the kind of person that I feel like if I had a critical life decision that I needed to make, I would come to you for advice and guidance.
1: Well, that's very—that's uh, that's very nice to hear. Appreciate that.
0: So those are my words and your own words. Tell us who you are and what do you do.
1: Well, I think that's an apt description. I think some of it comes from my father, who was an intellectual dry humor guy. Really? Uh, I lost him in uh, February, unfortunately. Um, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a loss for the family. He was 87. He was a former college professor. But um, he came from a unique blend, which I think in some ways I do too, where um, he, he grew up in, a, in what I consider the Grapes of Wrath. If you know that book, Steinbeck's mm-hmm. book, where I've, a family comes out from Oklahoma during the Depression, and the Dust Bowl, um, they they get on an old rickety truck and then the family members make their way from Oklahoma to California in the Great mi- in Migration from the Midwest into California. It was a, a big boom for Southern California and, and you know in West Coast in general. But these people had no money; they had no livelihood. They the Dust Bowl and the Depression, you know. Not only did the Dust Bowl happen on top of the Depression, um, but, but their ability to make a living off the land, which they've always done, was taken away from them. So they had you know, no sense of self, if you will. So that, that movie, I've made my kids watch it. It's in black and white, and most kids hate black and white movies, but it's the story of their dad's, their grandpa's life. Um, so he was, grew up in a, in a house that valued uh, hard work, and you know, he uh, was the first to go to college, went to Cal Poly in Pomona, um, back in the 50s and then you know, he played football there and but ended up uh, going into private practice in landscape architecture and then um, I was teaching at Cal Poly and then he moved us when I was 10 years old to our uh, family to, to Iowa and he got a job at Iowa State being a college professor there. So interesting blend there is he was a hard worker and we used to work with his hands and building things and but he's also an intellectual man at, at a college uh, hmm. environment and for us... I appreciate the fact that you work with your hands. I like, I was a carpenter. I know how to put landscape pipe together and do landscaping and pretty much could do anything when it comes around the house and, and building. Um, but you mix those two together and development seemed like a really easy thing for me to figure out because it was a lot of things that he did as design, hard work, understanding the, you know, how to put things together. And that's kind of how I ended up in the business. So I guess there's a lot more to it, but that's kind of in
0: a nutshell, I guess. Very cool. You mentioned your kids. Tell, tell me about your kids and your wife.
1: Yeah, I'm married to a lovely wife, uh, Shirley. We, we've been married for 31 years. Uh, I'll be 32 this year in June. Um, actually, be 31 this year, excuse me. Um, but we have four children, um, uh, two with, from my first marriage. Uh, my, my oldest daughter, Nikki, lives in Iowa. She has four children. My second daughter, uh, Jennifer, she lives in Davis, California. She's got five children. And then I have a daughter, Brianna, who works for the company in Denver. And then my son is in the U.S. Navy, and he's 22 years old. So Brianna works for the company, Panatoni. Yeah, That's she she yeah. she really came on. She graduated from college at, at Nevada Reno, and she um, this is a time during COVID where I was doing a lot of work across around the country for a particular client, and I needed somebody to kind of pulling together all the pieces because we had a lot of. A lot of work going and we needed somebody to be there to coordinate things and help us keep track of all the data and job information and what was going on. So she came in as an, as a coordinator for that particular client as since developed, uh, developed into more of a development manager role where she's working at other national accounts for us. So she, she's not my direct report just for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. but she, she works in the Denver office and um, is learning the business, whether she likes it or not. I don't know, but I think she does. Um, but yeah, she's been the company for, I think, three years now.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So your grandfather, clearly.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah, Nine, nine <laughs> <Multiple>. times, <yes. laughs> Wow. Yeah. yeah. Youngest is seven. Oldest is 21. Yeah. That's a big range. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I want to ask you, in your bio, it talks about that you're a founding board member of Nevada Children's Cancer Foundation.
1: Yeah, Northern Nevada. Northern Nevada, yeah. excuse me. How yeah. did
0: you get involved with that? Why did you get involved with that?
1: Well, so my wife grew up in Eureka, California, in the North Coast, and she had a, f- a friend who was moving up from Sacramento um, into Reno. And she was a board member of an organization in Northern California to help kids with cancer. And in in Reno in particular, we looked around at, okay, what can we do to kind of help and be involved in something? We noticed it wasn't an organization that was helping kids with cancer in Northern Nevada. So we thought there was a void to fill. And um, we took the organization in Sacramento and started a second chapter, if you will, in Northern Nevada. And that was, I think in 2003 or four, and then that morphed into joining forces with another organization called Angel Kiss, which was a monetary. They just gifted um, money to families with, with a child to cancer. And then ours was more hand on. We were more um, involved in fundraising activities, advocacy, things like that. You know, kind of like we had a staff and trying to get more information to the community and, and help families with a lot of different, both monetary, but also uh, helping them to kind of through the through the journey. And so we melded the two organizations together in 2009 and formed Northern Nevada Childhood Cancer Foundation. And um, my wife was actually working for, for Panettone probably in 2017, 18 to get my dates all screwed up. But um, she then had the opportunity to become the executive director of the organization. And she worked there for about four years until uh, early 2022 when um, we decided it was time to step aside and someone else, you know, took the reins. So, it's been a labor of love. It's, I mean, it's very intense. You know, you're dealing with a lot of families and a lot of, um, you know, trials and tribulations with what they're going through, but you know, it's worth worthwhile, obviously. I mean, the the amount of help you can do in the community for for these families mm-hmm. is, it was a void that wasn't being filled. And we were, um, we were fortunate to be able to do what we did. And, and now that void's being filled to some degree.
0: You created something out of nothing and now it's a, Fully running organization.
1: Yeah, with probably ten or fifteen, I'm ten or eleven staff people. I mean, we have a building that was donated by Nevada State Bank back in the at the Great Depression. So a great recession it was depression <laughs> for me. Um, yeah, that was a forty in yeah. slip. Uh, but but anyway, it was a it, we had a place to call home and and you know it's mostly office space. We turned this it's like a condo and an industrial project, um, and we turned it into a nice office for for our uh, staff and the families can come in and. During Christmas time, they use the back room to put gifts together for the kids and the families. So it's um, it's pretty neat to see what's happened. It's growing exponentially from what I ever thought it would be.
0: That's great. Yeah. So this show is called Takeaways, and it's about takeaways from people that have influenced me. So I like to ask everyone, I'm going to ask you, what's hmm. been the single most thing or influential, single most influential thing or event in your life that
1: has shaped you the most? It probably be 1980. When I was 19 years old I was a father and uh when you're 19 and in college and suddenly become a father you have to face the realities that you didn't have to the day before that happened and I think <laughs> um you know I was a typical high school kid you know did sports and did fairly well in school I wasn't a, I wasn't an outstanding academic um uh, achiever but I did pretty well and good enough to get me an Iowa state and um I was playing in rock bands and uh, you know enjoyed that life and and then um, I think I was in my first year of college and then you know my daughter was born in the in the fall of 1980. And so I had to leave school for I think a semester or something when that when that happened because I was working. I didn't really had to support myself. So I think it was a pivotal moment only because I had to kind of grow up and very quickly and that that I think that put me in a path of. You know, I'm going to pay my way through school. I'm going to, you know, take care of what I need to take care of. I work full time, um, still played in bands, but not as much, obviously. Uh, Worked part full time with school, you know, obviously had children. Had her second one before I graduated. Um, But it made me focus much better in school. And ironically, I always tell people going to school full time isn't necessarily the right thing for everybody because you almost have too much time and you want to be a little more compartmentalized. It forced me to be focused and it made me understand what I needed to do to get, get ahead Mm -hmm. in life. wasn't, I wasn't meandering before that, but I certainly was less disciplined. So that was the, that was probably the seminal moment of saying, all right, you're no longer a kid who can just goof around you gotta get your act together.
0: That's an interesting observation. The way you frame the college thing where there's on the spectrum, you go to school full-time and you're a full-time student, you get a degree and you graduate and then, the other side is you don't you go right to work right and there's I, I probably think about myself in that way i was going to college but also working throughout college mm-hmm. not one job but like sometimes odd jobs also right. to keep myself busy that's i never heard it framed like that actually
1: well it makes you manage your time better right you also appreciate the fact that you know going to college isn't just a uh, it's, it's not a give me from somebody you you got to work for it. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and some people works for it just going full-time school. I mean, it's not, it wasn't for me obviously, cause I had both sides. I didn't been much better when I was working because it forced me to have that structure. And I worked, I was a bartender. So I, you know, at night I'd leave the house and a walk to the job because we didn't we only had one car and then on the way home at two o'clock in the morning, I had to walk home no matter what temperature was outside mm-hmm. in Iowa. It could be 25 <laughs> big degrees below zero and I could freeze on the way home, but I, you know, no choice. It just makes you more disciplined. I think that's for me anyway, that was yeah. my experience. Well, you do what you have to do as opposed to, yeah. And I'm paying for myself, yeah.
0: you know? <laughs> yeah. So keep going on, on that track. You were in a rock band, you're in college or no rock band, kids, work college. What did you do right after college?
1: So unfortunately, I went through a divorce. We, we moved from um, Ames, Iowa, um, where I was married and had the two children, to Davis, California, where I would, um, my ex-wife went to law school in UC Davis, and we separated. Um, and so I, I was going to go out to Sacramento to work. Uh, I was a sociology major. I was working in a nonprofit. A what major? Sociology. Sociology. Okay. Yeah, so I was going to work in the, you know, the nonprofit youth world and help youth uh, ended up going back to Iowa for nine months. Um, and then I, I really, with the intent of that was, uh, trying to get my act together. I mean, kind of get my head around what was going on. And my mom actually was there at the house by herself because my dad took a job at Washington state. He had moved ahead of her. And so my dad liked the fact that he had a man at the house. I mm-hmm. was there. I had my two kids. I was playing like bands again at night. So my mom would watch the kids put them to bed. I would put them to bed and I'd go to practice. Or in the weekends, I'd work Thursday, Friday, Saturday night from like nine to one, playing a gig somewhere, and it actually played pretty well. I mean, I actually made some good money doing it. And then during the day, I worked at a um, a school for um, I don't know the proper term anymore. Back then, it was called MDBD, which is um, mentally disabled, behaviorally disordered, and so these were troubled kids, but they had mental, diso- um, they had uh, mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and then I came back to to um, Greater Sacramento area. And worked at the local conservation corps with eighteen to twenty-three year old kids for I think three years, and that was a nonprofit trying to get them an education and work ethic training. And I was one of the the supervisors, and I became one of the directors of the of the, of the program. And I also worked at juvenile hall during that time in Sacramento. Um, I was doing bodybuilding, so I was quite large, and so they put me in some of the big the big units so I could be mm-hmm. intimidating. That was kind of the way they did it. Um, these were these were pretty violent kids, but you're still a man and they're not. So it was, you saw that, you know, rapport that you could at least say, Hey, you know, don't mess around. But, um, and then that was in till 89 that I, uh, approached a local developer in, in, um, Sacramento. I tell people quite candidly, I was tired of being poor. I needed to make some money. I, I mean, I was just kind of getting by and he gave me an opportunity. That was 1989 when I got into development and I just asked him for a job. And A month later, he gave me one, which was shocking. But
0: so I remember in talking to you, I thought like corrections officer was in my mind. Yeah, close. And it was that—that's the juvie, juvenile hall, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Where, where I made that connection.
1: Because yeah. I thought about going into law enforcement at the time. Juvenile hall was—it was great because I was exposed to it, and I—I learned about you know criminal justice in, in college because that was one of the things I was thinking about going into, and you know whether it was probation officer or you know being a police officer or. You know, some kind of youth advocacy program where I could you know, help the kids who were coming out and having some problems. Um, and after juvenile hall, I kind of felt like I was in jail, too, because you come in you can't leave. not like you're going to go out and run some errands. I mean, you're in there for eight hours, and that's it. You eat lunch there, you eat dinner there, whatever you're doing. So I, I kind of felt it was limiting. It wasn't something I wanted to do full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and full-time being correctional officer in a prison or whatever you're doing, um, you, you just have to... I kind of figure I wanted more flexibility. I guess. And law enforcement, even though it appealed to me, I looked at development as, um, building things as funner. And that's what I did at the Conservation Corps. I was I built things with the Corps members, you know whether it was picnic benches or whatever we were doing, we were you know, building things. And I liked that. What is the Conservation Corps? So there's two or three levels of it, but at the state level, Conservation Corps in California is a massive employment program for 18 to 23-year-old youth. And so they mostly... Uh, in rural areas of the state. Mm -hmm. So in the mountains somewhere, they're doing restoration work or something. The Conservation Corps in Sacramento, and there's, um, in every urban area in California, there's local corps, which are designed for public parks, clean up alleys, things where they can get in and do work in in the community. Most times, same 18 to 23-year-old, can't have a criminal record, but they're trying to combine education. Like some of these guys don't have high school diplomas, so a GED, while they're employed with us, one day a week was education, four days a week of work. And then mostly in parks, that kind of stuff, but urban environment. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a good program. Yeah. No, I, you could, you could have, satisfy the Democrats and the Republicans, but you know, one I <laughs> was helping get you education, the other one was making them work and work ethic. So yeah. you could sell it to both sides of the aisle. It yeah. was a good sell. Yeah. And providing in a way a service to the state. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I, my core business is commercial real estate brokerage. And property management, I should say. And often you talk to sales agents, commercial real estate brokers, and they have aspirations of becoming a developer. Or when you think about a developer, it may be a general contractor that got into development or maybe a finance person or an architect or something that, that moves in there. It's not a typical path to go from a juvenile hall director <laughs> to development.
1: No, not at all. <laughs> And, and, I, and it's even a little more convoluted because once I got in the development business with this um, developer from Sacramento, he was one of Buzz O's partners and Buzz was is a huge developer in California. Um, but they were the old, what I consider an old fashioned builder. Everything was done in house. There they were a general contractor, the developer, everything was done within one house. He didn't sub out different parts of the business. Mm-hmm. Like, like for Panatoni, we, we contract with the con general contractor, for them, they are the general contractor and they just turn to the other offices where somebody does something else. So it was, it was, the reason I say that is because you got cross trained. Mm-hmm. You had to do everything because that's what was required. Okay. You couldn't just say, well, I'm a general contractor. No, you're the general contractor, you're the property manager, you're the guy who writes the leases, you got to go talk to the brokers, but it forced you to be cross trained. So in 95, we were just getting over a recession in California. I mean, the rest of the nation had recession, but 95 were kind of you know California was coming out late and I was uh, there were some changes in my employment with that developer where I, I was able to list properties but it wasn't going to be financially very viable for me so then I started looking around and then I got hired on at Pantoni at the time they had five different general contractors that uh, Pantoni owned Carl Pantoni and one of them was called Nathan Construction and I went to work with them and became a project manager with them. Then I became a vice president. Then I became one of the partners in the company within a pretty short time, like a year or something. Um, but there, my cross-training started helping me out. Because the owner of the company wanted to be a developer, too. And Carl Pantoni let him be a developer. And he used me to write the leases. So if, if there was an area of the country that nobody was in, we could go in and build some buildings, which we did. So... I look at my early experience in development as being a, a godsend because I was able to do everything. I actually was a superintendent, I was a project manager, I was in the field, I did things, you know, as a, you know, working with my hands. So there wasn't much I didn't know, understand. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't that great at it, but at least I did it. And so I'd, I'd go out and I'd, you know, basically build everything. I'd go from soup to nuts. From 98, 99, 2000, I'd traveled to Pittsburgh and I did a deal with Dick Sporting Goods. And I did stuff for Ball Corporation in Iowa. I did stuff in Denver, Colorado, where literally I did the whole thing, which was great. Um, it has its limits. I mean, obviously, you can only do so much. But at that experience, um, I'd been remarried for quite a while. And we had our second child, my son, and I was on the road way too much. It wasn't four days a week. It wasn't, really wasn't plausible. And I love my wife dearly. And I said, I don't want to be away from you all the time. So what can we do? And I went to Carl and I said, can I, can I take Reno? And we were living in Sacramento at the time. And I said, he said, sure. So moved over the hill, took over Reno in Las Vegas. This is in 2001. I became a full on development partner. So that's how that happened. Mostly to get myself off the road. And they were kind enough to give me a territory.
0: So we talked about you mentioned Carl, you mentioned Panatoni. Talk and you mentioned in your early days the old school developer and the the structure that was. Mm-hmm. Talk about the structure of Panatoni as a company.
1: Yeah, so it's it's actually pretty flat considering the size. I think by most people's metrics, we're the top one, two, or three biggest developers in the United States. We are the biggest developer in Canada. We are the biggest developer in Europe, and we just opened an office in India. Um, and Carl's model of, of how he does things is development is a very capital intensive business. You have to spend a lot of money and you need to either have deep pockets or you need to be used in somebody else's money who has deep pockets because it's just expensive. Um, but his, his method and what worked, I think particularly well like, in places like Europe is um, enable people in a certain geographic market to own what they build with him. And so, if you're in Reno or Las Vegas and, and you're on your own and they say, we'll bring you capital, debt, our our marketing because we have a great resume, all you need to do is go get deals. That's pretty enticing for somebody like me who at the time didn't have much money, right? I'm like, well, mm-hmm. oh, I can't afford to build these buildings by myself. But if they're willing to infuse capital into my market and bring me debt and, and I can use the relationships that Pantone has with the brokerage community and learn how they did it. You know, Carl taught us, you know, our client is our brokers. That's not, that's who we want to make sure we're taken care of. And it's worked to me wonderfully, but those that enabling me to own part of the project with them, um, makes a very motivated individual. And it's been probably the single most motivating factor in Panettone is the fact that we own stuff with the company. So there's 14 people like me across the country. There's two guys in Canada, there's two partners in Canada. Um, and I don't know how many partners are in Europe now, but there's a lot because there's so many different countries, obviously. But each one of us owns a piece of our buildings. And um, what we're expected to do is run a, you know, a, a good ship, if you will. We have to have our employees that we work with, and we're there to day-to-day manage them. But simply put, it's a big mothership with a lot of moons around it, and and that incentivizes us to do well. But, you know, there's some things you got, you know Carlisms one of the things he says all the time is enjoy the success of others and that that works both ways mm-hmm. you know it's it sounds you know we want you to do well, but in turn he does well and it's been a great model for us. I'm writing that one down
0: That's the first of many Carlisms I yes. imagine we're gonna we're yes. gonna talk about yes it is you know so the the follow- up to that is what's the brilliance of the company, but you already you already really just Lay that out nicely in the in the way that it's structured. He's able to attract talented, motivated people and to um, work with an intellect with work ethic like you for a long period of time.
1: Yeah, but it's also a a way of doing business that I I think is probably not unique. But it seems like sometimes people assume it's unique. Is that you you have a very honest and forthright way of doing things where you know, um, whoever you're doing business with feels like you're, they're being, um, you know, being treated fairly. If, and I always, I remember this cause you know, I remember Carl saying a few things early in my, my career with him is if you have a few dollars left in your budget and you're doing a building for somebody, give them the money back in some kind of improvements to the building, which seems like intuitively like a business person says, I want to keep my expenses low and my profit high and make sure that I'm, you know, um, grabbing every dollar I can. He doesn't think that way. Because you, you get repeat clients mm-hmm. or you get a satisfied client and the broker says, hey, that's pretty cool. You, got to, you know, put in a water feature and you didn't have to do it because he has some extra money in the budget. That's the kind of stuff I think just permeates through the company where you treat, treat, treat people right and then you do repeat business. And that's, you know, even if they're not going to grow, at least they'll be a good, good reference for you. And that's yeah. huge in my world. Talk about the the client is our broker. Well, now,
0: let me just kind of. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you noticed, I'm wearing a beautiful shirt with Panettone on it, Right. the Travis Matthew brand. I mean, top of the line. Yep. Every winter around the holidays, there's a package that comes here to several of us, not just me, because I'm special. Yeah. Several of us who are on your list for one reason or another that are brokers. And it's not, you know, a tchotchke. It's something nice like this. Uh, Right. One year was a winter coat, like a blue puff-up winter coat. This is Panatoni here, and you know you can bet. Like a week later, there's five of us in here wearing the same Panatoni swag. That's one little example of how you guys treat the brokerage community. I can give several more. Yeah, but there are people out there in the real estate community that don't like to pay broker commissions because that's. Either money they could keep, or they just frankly view brokers as they don't do a lot of a lot of work at all, mm-hmm. and you're getting these enormous fees. Sure, you guys don't have that. Talk no. talk about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm, if I'm paying commissions, I mean I have a deal, and I like. Why, why
0: is that though? I mean, that sounds well, simple, right? But why is that? What well, happens in order for that to yeah manifest?
1: I think getting back to the swag you talk about, I mean, one of the things I've learned early on is don't buy crap. Make sure it's quality. If you give somebody a crappy shirt with a, your logo on it, they're not going to wear it. So might as well not even do it. And especially in commercial brokers, they're, you know, they make a good living. If if, if they're going to wear crappy clothes, then you're just insulting them. So I think for me, I always want to make sure Columbia jackets or, you know, Travis Matthews shirts or whatever it is, buy top of line, make sure that it's good quality stuff. But I think when it comes down to the brokerage community, there's, there's an inherent incentive for a broker who is not getting paid until a deal is done to be your advocate. In other words, they're not going to do something that's not going to be fruitful for both of you in the long run. If they're, if, if they're doing all this work for a, for a tenant to place them in a building and you get to be the recipient of that tenant, all that work they did means nothing until that tenant's in the building. So why would I not help um, a business out if they're not getting paid because they're only incentivized by that commission to help them on that route to make sure they get, they get the, at the end of the day, they get paid. And I think you look at it as, it's a, it's a service that, first of all, I get to enjoy the success of others because somebody's getting paid for a service they're giving to me. And, and the fact that most cases in this day and age, most tenants are represented by a broker. So why would you ever go around a broker, get to a tenant when they're already represented by the broker mm. deal with that broker? Cause it's not, if it's not that tenant, it's another tenant. And if it's not that tenant, it's another tenant beyond that. And the amount of repeat business I do with brokers in this town, is probably dozens and dozens of times because they know I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to pay them on time. Um, their, their clients can be happy. So, you know, everybody's incentivized by money, but they also want to be, Hey, good job. Good job on doing this. And you have good business reputation in town. I, I I just don't know why anybody would think that's not smart business.
0: Yeah, I'll talk about specifically what you're saying as is, as is, uh, when a broker has a deal and they have options on where to take it. Why they would bring it to a Panatone? I have a specific takeaway on that that we'll get to with with 3G. Yeah. Um, before we jump to that, a takeaway from you over the years. So I've talked about this before on the podcast that a young a young age. When I was a young agent, the company that, that I was with sponsored the local SIOR chapter. SIOR is one of the commercial real estate associations and the chapter meets monthly like most associations. This one's a little different in that it's a small group by design. They don't want you know, the masses in there. Mm-hmm. The SIOR agents in our market that earn the designation are really the top whatever percent, 1% or 5% of all the agents in the market. They really are the, the deal makers and the format of the lunch is there's always a sponsor. So like a Panatoni or some other developer will sponsor the lunch. And for that, they get airtime and they get to talk about their projects or deals that they're doing to this group of movers and shakers. And at the end there's a round table. Mm -hmm. So I remember one of the very, very first SI war lunches where now Panatoni is the sponsor. What a difference there was in, in the presentation It wasn't, uh, I'm taking up the entire 45 minutes I have to talk about, this is you, to talk about you and your deals. It was, Hey, at a very high level, here's what we have going on. Here's, uh, what we'd like to do with you. And then you immediately shifted into, I think at the time it was some kind of trivia, like Panatoni trivia. And if you answer the question, here's some quality stuff that we are giving out and creating fun and excitement. Right. So that was one takeaway. And, uh, how you guys present and, and show up in the market as opposed to others. Um, you mentioned Carl a lot.
1: Talk about Carl. He, he's just been a, you know, a tremendous mentor for me. Um, you know, I, I had dinner with him last week. Uh, he just uh, one of those guys that we go back 30 years. Um, I guess it's almost 30 years. And just one of those guys who I've, I've learned so much um, business ethics business in general, how to treat, you know, your, your job and how, because in our world and my world and how things work with me and, and my wife to a large, large degree, um, it's kind of a lifestyle that you have, you know, I travel so much and we do so much that, you, that I don't have an eight to five job or 95 never have. It's more like my, my lifestyle is around my work, but then I take time off as I see fit, but it's not, I'm not, you sound like a millennial. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's probably true. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I heard a guy in uh, Venice a couple weeks ago say, I, "You know, I I uh, I work to live, I don't live to work." And I I kind of laughed at it because I've heard that phrase many, many times. For me, I I like working because I like freedom, which is ironic um, because I want freedom to make my own choices, mm-hmm. financial or otherwise. And so, um, but what what I guess what Carl has taught me is uh, really. Um, the way you treat people always comes around. Doesn't matter if you know. There's the old adage: if you're not nice to the, to the wait, wait staff, then you're not a nice person because mm-hmm. you can't pick and choose who you want to be nice to. And Carl never lets you think that you're not important at the time. Um, and so I think it's a it's a way of treating people, a way of treating the business community, and how how, how you treat your clients. Whether it's the brokers or the actual tenant, you know how you treat them. So I think he's built an organization based on a, a, a philosophy and way of, of living that's um, by example to some degree. But he's obviously a very brilliant guy. I mean, I've, I've met a lot of really smart, smart developers who weren't very good developers, and I can't tell you why. And one of the Carlisms i am not trying to do mm-hmm. too many of them—but one of them is the best guesser is the best developer, and 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 you you. Sometimes can know so much that you don't do something. I mean, you know too much, or you make the wrong decision at the wrong time. Um, I sometimes I play I play a lot of solitaire on planes because <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to work all the time. So I'm checking email, but I play solitaire, and it kind of keeps me like my mind going. If I if I move one stack to the other, like if I have a, a you know black seven to a red eight, and I have two choices, and I move one, I always check both, right? To make sure that i'm making the right move mm-hmm. Development's the same way where i could choose this site plan and build this type of building or i can make this site plan use this and that is irreversible but you just have to guess what your gut tell you what's the brokers tell you what's the market information tell you so i think for for me just understanding the choices you have and how you make these decisions is very intuitive and carl has a sense about this stuff that's uncanny like when you opened europe like I was over there because one of my clients was going to Europe and Carl said, Hey, would you do me a favor and make the introduction so we can see the, we can work them in Europe. I said, by all means, let's go. And so we were over there and we were at you know, dinner or something one night. And I said, so why are you doing this? And it, you know, he made a comment about if, if, if I'm not growing, cut my wrist and put me in a bath. I mean, I'm done. And I was like, that's phenomenal. That's the type of wiring he has in his head. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, just want to keep on moving, just keep going. It doesn't gloat over deals. Doesn't say, "Hey, you know, I got this deal done." You know, it's like, "All right, what's next?" That's what he says to me all the time. Hey, what's next? Like, congratulations. All right, that's in the burn. Go. What's next? And that's is that. I'm a team. good
0: thing or is that a? It, is that a lead to burnout kind of a thing?
1: No, it can, but it's not that type of environment. It doesn't. Yeah, it feels like it's couched in everything yeah, you're, else you're saying about him. Yeah, you're self motivated. So yeah. if you didn't want to do, it, you just don't do it. You know, and that. I think what it does is, it, it, if you if you're not careful, you don't smell the roses. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, don't get caught up in your own BS. You know, you got to, yeah, great, good job. The market saved you, probably. That's, that's happened <laughs> many times. Like, you know, you, you, did you underwrite that exit cap? No, the market saved me. Good, move on. So it's almost like don't get up in your own, don't think too much about yourself and how great you are. But you know, you, you must be good. But you know, don't gloat on it. You mm-hmm. Move on. So. That's one of those, you know, you can be, you can be self-aggrandized and you kind of step back and say, yeah you know, I made a good choice, had some great partners, things worked out and let's move on, let's let's go. But that's, that's just kind of what I learned from him, I guess.
0: And again, you mentioned brokers are the clients. Why wouldn't it be that, you know, the occupiers that you're working with are the clients?
1: It's not mutually exclusive. It's not a binary choice. I mean, to me, it's, both. Yeah. I, my, that is my end client is my, I got to take care of that tenant. Mm. And it, you know, the e-commerce company we talked about offline is, is my client. And, but that broker in that, in that's this case, there's a major brokerage from the rep center that client. They want me talking to the, to, to the end user because it builds that rapport mm. that they know. And they can trust me. I'm not going around them. You know, we're going to, we're going to take care of both of you. So I think as long as the tenant's happy, the broker's usually happy. It's not always the other way around. The broker's happy. The tenant could be upset, but, but if the tenant's happy, the broker's usually happy. So you you got to watch out for both. But I may not do fifteen deals with the tenant. I'll do fifteen deals with the broker. So no matter what the situation is, I want that broker to be happy till so they call me again. You know.
0: You know we're t- we're talking about it in in the sense of the broker has a company that needs some development, and then they bring them to you. Right. There's also the broker knows about a land opportunity or a building that can be acquired, and they can take it to you know, the usual suspects yep. and you want to be the usual suspect, so to speak. Just be in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember at that SIOR lunch that I mentioned, where you guys gave your presentation, you talked about this concept of the triple play. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if Panattoni invented that or what, but that's where
1: I first heard it. So
0: all right. Well, by my book, it's it. yours. <laughs> yeah. So t- talk about what is that?
1: Well, so the, the, the broker in the ideal world can get three commissions off of one transaction. And it's not selfish. It's just the way it works. I mean, if the broker represents me in the land transaction, there's a land commission. If the broker represent, represents me in the lease transaction, there's a so lease commission. So
0: you buy the land, and then you're going to build a building. Right. And then you have a building to lease up. Yeah. So that's the second piece.
1: And then I to sell the building. Well, and that's then the, you
0: have to sell it to... Whoever. An investor that's not you, basically. Yeah.
1: So if we're, if we're in a, what I call a merchant build situation, where we build the building, stabilize and sell it, that's merchant build. And so those are three, three transactions. Um, we don't always do that. Sometimes our capital partner wants to keep it, promote us out, we get paid and we, we go away. Um, and sometimes we build it and we want to keep it. Mm-hmm. But that's the nature of the triple play. And it's, it's worked well because, obviously, you know, it's three transactions and one is a pretty good deal.
0: And so there are people out there that might say, well, listen, broker, you're going to get three times three, three opportunities for compensation, so you're going to have to discount me on each one along the way.
1: Not going to happen. Why? <laughs> think of all the money you could save. Because I want to worry about the next deal. That's the part of that not gloating. Move yeah. on. Yeah. It's, I think Carl would kill me if I ever said I want to discount a broker's fee. Yeah, Unless it was outrageous. But no, you, you pay a market fee every single time. That's what you got to do. And I'm happy to do it.
0: And over time, and this is where I'm, I'm going with this. Over time, you guys have a reputation for if, if I, as a broker, have a selection of people that I could take an opportunity to. Because of that, because of the transparency, because of the way you deal with people, that you, you know, if there's extra money in the budget, you're going to roll it back to them, and I know that you're, if not the first call, among the first calls.
1: Well, that's great. That's my that's my intent. I'll, I'll, as long as I'm in the group, I can hopefully win the business. But yep. don't win them all. That's Maybe. the that's the takeaway basically
0: yeah. from yes. uh, from Panattoni. So um, early, no, it wasn't early. Mid two thousands. We're in Las Vegas, Southern Nevada, global Great Recession. I was a young agent. One of my coworkers said, hey, NAOP is this association for developers. They've got this thing called the Developing Leaders Institute. I wrote you a letter of recommendation. Here's the application. I already filled it out for you. All you have to do is sign it and send it in. Don't think about this too much, Haim. Just do it because it's good for you. And I took her advice, and I did. And that was about the time when I first came in contact with you, Aside from the presentation that you gave where I didn't know you, but this is now where I start to get an opportunity to know who you are. You were one of the presenters of the Institute. So the Institute was a 12 month curriculum, the development process A to Z, and they brought real life people that are actually doing development to teach the classes, essentially ranging from finance to design to site selection, to construction, to all that stuff. Yep. At the time in Las Vegas, we were one of four cities in the entire country that was ground zero for commercial real estate defaults and, and all that. So it was pretty bleak out there. There was a falling, there was a catching a falling knife. No one wanted to reach out and grab it. Um, everything was frozen. Yep. Real estate went from private ownership to either uh, people sitting in cubicles in Irving, Texas that are called special servicers. Or it went back to the bank. And there was this period, a prolonged period, where nothing literally nothing was happening. Prices were still going down. No one wanted to act because they didn't want to be the statistic, the dummy that, you know, went first but then kept kept moving. But then you did. You found a project. It was a Buffalo Business Park, if I'm not mistaken. This is about two thousand and nine, August two thousand and nine is when it closed. I think you bought it from Nevada State Bank.
1: Yeah. It was Buffalo two fifteen, I think.
0: Yeah, so in the southwest part of the valley, it was. Um, I think there were what six buildings or eight buildings already built. There were.
1: I think there was eight industrial, four office buildings.
0: Eight industrial, and four office, and, and there was some excess land. Yep. And you made a play, you bought it from the bank,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and at the time, again, there's there was like. Virtually no deal velocity happening in the market. So part of what we do is we track deals, who's doing what, because those are market comps and buyers and sellers and all that. And it, and it felt like to me, it was a much more intimate time in our industry because everyone was, I mean, there isn't much going on. So we're all talking more about what is actually happening to try to figure out how we're going to make a living. And, you, and go, you go and do this. And so it was like all eyes on you. And the, one of the cool things about our industry, and I don't know how it is in other markets, but it feels like in Southern Nevada, there's a lot of just openness and transparency, a lot of discussion in the NAOP circles and the Sior circles where people are sharing mm-hmm. for the benefit of the industry. Sure. And you were talking about this deal. And I remember you said something to the effect of, you didn't say the best guesser is the best developer, but you said, I'm making a play here and I'm either gonna be really brilliant or I'm gonna fail miserably. And you knew that Yeah. in a way. And so talk, talk, talk about that deal to the best that you can remember, like what was going on around you? Why did you make that decision? What were some of the things you took away from that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we all, I mean, I think we all knew in 2007 and eight that it wasn't going to end well. If you were at all aware and to your, to your credit, probably your time in the business wasn't that long. Correct. For me, I would have no excuse not to know what was going on because I should be more aware of it because I've been in the business for so long at, at that time. Um, it was probably 20 years in the business. So I, it was one of those things where I said to myself, way too many stupid things are happening for this not to go. It's not going to end well, whether it's going to be a huge crash or some kind of cyclical system that's going to kind of you know wind down slowly. My bet was on a crash. I, I just looked at it and go, because 2008 came around, I think there was a couple, you know, bear Stearns happened the year before, but there was a couple of things that happened in 2008 that just got me like, Ugh. and probably the biggest one was Lehman in September of 08. Mm. That's that's when the beginning of the end, and I saw it kind of like spiraling. You can see the stock market going up and down thousand points a day, and I remember talking to my wife said, you know, it's going to get kind of brutal. We just need to kind of buckle down, and 2008 is when I first learned about what's called margin calls from our lenders, and we were capitalized much, much different before this than we are now. We're much more institutional in nature with our capital before. Is a lot of uh, private money and you know ways we did things were a little bit different. So margin calls were basically trying to um, rejigger loans to the the value of the of the um, of the asset. And so what you have when you what you have and what you had was a spiraling effect. So if you had a project just for simple math was worth a hundred bucks when you built it, or you thought it was anyway. Mm-hmm. And then six months later, you got a reappraise and it's worth $75. And then because of somebody else's leases around you that caused your, your building to fall in value. Well, you'd have to right size that loan to go to 75, um, 75 bucks based on a loan of, you know, 80% of whatever the number is. So you'd have to constantly make that loan payment to make sure they they were, um, in line. Well, then the guy next door would do another deal less than you. Then six months later, you'd have to do a margin. These are mm-hmm. obviously quite quicker than this. So you have to pay down to 50 bucks now. So you'd have to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you say pay, literally
0: you're taking money, you're, you're writing a check to the lender to keep your ratios correct.
1: Correct. Yeah. If and you, it could even
0: be that your building is not, your leases aren't going down, but right. because the market comps are saying that the values are down, you're having to write a check.
1: Yeah, I think, I think most people in the residential world, if they never dealt in the commercial paper, whether it's commercial loans, it could be a UCC commercial loan to a, you know, for manufacturing for their inventory or whatever plant they're doing. But these, these loans are much shorter and have covenants that are much stricter than you would in a normal house. If you had a $500,000 house and it was worth 300000 they didn't make you do a loan margin. You just keep on paying it. In the commercial world, it's much different. You constantly have to be mark-to-market. That's mm-hmm. how they operate so if you, it's what I call a death spiral, where you constantly have to yeah. re-margin your loans to get as, as value slowly got down. And where I was concerned in 08, early 09 was, this is not going to stop. When's this going to stop? When is there going to be a bottom to this where we have to go down any further? Because eventually you're taking all your cash and you're throwing it out to loans. And then after a while, people in our position or other people's position, they like, forget it. Just take it. I, I'm not going to make any more payments. And that's that's where um, the death spiral and what happened with that is why there's so much capital that had to be infused in the system by the Fed because banks didn't have any money left. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to lend to each other. They didn't trust each other because of what happened with Bear Stearns and Lehman and the system kind of grind to a complete stop. Because, you know, it was a credit freeze. Um, so, late 08, early 09, into the summer, um, we were the victim of margin calls. And siloing assets to make sure that the bank could grab something if they needed to pay back something else. So it was a brutal time, personally and for the company, and for the country, obviously. It was horrible. But in the brokerage world, you need transactions. Even if it's a negative transaction for the seller and buyer, you just need a transaction to make money. And nothing was happening. By the time August of 2009 came around, I finally got to see something on the other side of the ledger. In other words, I would have been over here getting my teeth and, and kicked in. And then I looked at this and I go, wait a minute. Cause I think Nevada state bank, I don't know if somebody called me. I don't remember the genesis of how the deal came up. And I looked at it and I go, this actually makes sense. I mean, I can, I can have at you know, a couple of bucks a foot. I can have these buildings. I think the industrial buildings were 45 bucks. Mm-hmm. The offices were 90 bucks. And I said, I mean, even in this state of just pure disarray, how can I lose on this? And it was a, it was a chance to kind of turn the tables a little bit on what's going on. It was a beginning of me kind of seeing a path out. Because if I'm getting margin called, that means everybody else is getting margin called. And there's blood in the water, I can go at least do something, you know, to, to buy an asset at very, very discounted value. Mm-hmm. And I remember that developer bought that land for twenty bucks. That was back in the time where Things were going crazy on the, on the on the beltway. I didn't really understand the values. I didn't think they should be that high, but unless it was making sense. Was that Lee Phelps?
0: Was yeah. his project?
1: Yeah. yeah. But my goal was two things. I didn't want to hurt him. And I, want, I if there was the ability to have loan forgiveness, it was on him. I didn't, couldn't do anything about it, but I wasn't mm-hmm. going to stick him with anything. And if we bought the note, I can go out after him for deficiency judgment. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it, that wasn't my goal. So basically, you become the lender. Yeah. And he has
0: a loan at hundred bucks. You're buying it for 50 bucks. You've got a $50
1: deficiency against him if you wanted to go after him. for right. that, Basically. But that wasn't my goal. Right. No, it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, if I was satisfied with that basis, that's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. The other part of it was a bunch of liens on the property, uh, construction liens okay. that we're not getting paid. And that was probably $2 million at the time, something like that. And I, there are seven or eight different guys who had liens. During a foreclosure, those liens get wiped out, right? I could have paid zero, but I made them all whole. Um, because, number one, it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And number two is, I'm in this valley for years. I'm not going to have these people say, hey, that developer screwed me out of all my money. Or he paid me 50 cents on the dollar. And
0: the letter of the law is you don't have to pay them. Zero. You
1: didn't screw them. You
0: didn't contract with them. No. But just the same, you are going to. You bought it. Now it's yours. You didn't pay them. So that's going to be the reputation. Right. And another carlism. This one I remember. No dead bodies. Is that right?
1: This one, no, no dead bodies. Right. Yeah. Is that where this would come into play? In a way it wouldn't. No? It wouldn't. That was a forward dead body. <laughs> forward. <laughs> so we found, a de- we found a dead body before we even started. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to be that guy that mm-hmm. said, hey, sorry, guy. You know, you, you're out of luck. Because it's, it's not just, you know, they didn't do anything wrong. They leaned the job like you're supposed to do. And the recession hit. And how would you feel if a developer as prominent as us basically said, "Ah, eh, you're screwed"? Sorry, nothing I can do about it. Um, in the long run, <laughs> ironically, not one of them ever called me and thanked me, which I thought was kind of weird. It wasn't like I was looking for any kind of the boys, but it would have been nice to get a call. But in the long run, now, people- by the way,
0: can I, that's a takeaway too.
1: Yeah, like it's okay to thank somebody from time to time. Yeah, by doing sending their- you money. Yeah. Even if
0: it's owed to you, by (laughs) the way, Yeah, thank you for payment.
1: But I know by reputation and people talk to your point, everybody was talking back then that people heard that we took care of these people. So Mm -hmm. it was a good move. And and again, it was the right thing to do and and kept us our reputation attack, a dead body to me. When he says no dead bodies, if we sell a piece of property or property, rather finished building or whatever it is, six months later, we have something come up. That's a dead body. Mm -hmm. Where did you know about this? Yeah, I just didn't take care of it. That would be a non-starter. You, you, you don't do that. Everything needs to be nice in a bow. And I, and I, I have a, uh, I have a picture on my wall of a. It's a character of me and two guys from our construction company that we work with now. And it's me with gum on my shoes, and the guys are back there trying to scrape it out, right? Because I say I don't want gum on my shoes when a deal closes. I don't want to hear about it six months from now. It's yeah. gum on my shoes, and I don't want it. And they always joke about it, but I always tell them. Whatever you do, when I sell a building, no gum on my shoes. I don't want to have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. Same principle. Yeah. All right. So, Buffalo Business Park. So that one turned out actually really really well. Um, It it was in when we bought it in '09. I just wanted something to do to keep me in the game, you know, because financially I wasn't hurting like everybody else is. We were still you know making a salary and I could afford to live. And it wasn't it wasn't it was a bad time for net worth, but it wasn't bad time for living. That makes sense. I lost mm-hmm. a huge amount of my net mm-hmm. worth, but I could still live and I was okay. I had low debt. I didn't, I wasn't levered up on a bunch of stuff. So I was fine, but I wanted to stay in the game because I got to come out the so other your side. Your
0: car wasn't getting repoed while you're at the office. No, no I that didn't. was have, happening back
1: then. Yeah, absolutely. To a lot of people, but thank God I didn't have any debt. Yeah. I didn't have car loans. I didn't have a home that was levered way up. So it was again. I, I always say I'm, I'm blessed, but, um, I, I just want to be there because Carl says, uh, you know, you, we always come out stronger out, out, out of these recessions. It calls it hurt a little bit. We kind of come out stronger. So I was like, Oh, I hope that's right. But I wanted to at least be hanging around the hoop. When things got better, I could be there. And so we ended up, um, doing a lot of work in the properties, just kind of get them up to snuff. There was just a few things that need to be cleaned up. Um, you know, from a legal standpoint, the parcels, whatever it was, mm-hmm. then we started selling them off one by one. Um, and probably for the most part, I remember mean, now you'll probably go, "Oh my God, wish I had that stuff back. we probably sell them for seventy five eighty bucks mm-hmm. um, which was almost double in our money, um, and then the office buildings probably didn't do as well of a margin, but then we had the land we used for a build to see for u s micro right and that's one of my proudest buildings. that's a gorgeous building that had nothing to do with the design, but the way it turned out is very eye- catching
0: yeah, so I remember I think I remember you correct me if I'm wrong. When you we were talking about this back then that was how you saw this project. you can buy the thing buy this thing with some existing buildings that you can then turn around and sell make some money on but really you end up with this beautiful rectangular parcel yep. of land yep and I, I, I still
1: think it was an interesting way to look at something yeah but if even if it wasn't like a huge money maker it wasn't huge but it's good mm-hmm. it kept us in the game and that was like half my battle was like I just want to be relevant whatever that means. Yeah. So I'm here, I'm doing work, I'm still in town. Um, and that, and that the building we built kind of just kept it going a little bit mm-hmm. longer. And it's a nice thing to see on the, on the freeway when You can see a building being tilted in 2010 when nothing was going on.
0: Is that when you built us micro? Yeah. Yeah. That was a big deal too. Yep. Fast forward to 2012. Now I've graduated NAOP. I'm more involved. I graduated, excuse me, DLI. I'm more mm-hmm. involved. And I want to say it was a, NAOP tour at the Shuffle Master building that you built, also on the 215. Okay. Yeah. Or like 215 in Jones.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I still, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, if my memory's right for the timeline. This was, again, one of the only buildings being built. So it was a big deal. We're all going to go tour it, and you're guiding the tour and you're walking us around. And I stuck with me that a big takeaway was you were pointing out that you designed... So it was a build-a-suit for a specific company called Shuffle Master. Yep. This was the company, if you go to any Las Vegas casino, you see the little machine that the dealers have where they put the cars in, they push a button, it shuffles it for them, spits out the other deck. Right. And they had a lease. They were leasing these machines to all the casinos. So it was like the company was killing it, probably. Right. Yeah. And now they need to build their own building. This is when I learned the term, build-a-suit. Mm-hmm. So you're doing a build to suit So you have a site... Company needs a project, you build it to their specifications for them. And I emphasize all that because as you're walking us through the building, you were pointing out specific features in the design that you insisted on that if this building ever needed to be changed, it could be changed for a more general use. Is that? Can you fill in the blanks there?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, some of that comes from my construction background and understanding how things come together. And I think that's where it served me well to understand – flexibility is the king because you don't want to go back after the fact and try to retrofit something. If you, if you can avoid doing that, don't waste the, your dollars. And number two is everybody who buys it afterwards has that flexibility from you so that you get a better price. So in this case, I think we did embeds are called they their, are embeds in the column are the, the panels and you can weld a ledger onto it and put a mezzanine on it. So in the concrete columns
0: of the warehouse, yeah,
1: yeah. So you, there's a couple things you have to engineer it to be able to hold the load. So your, your, your panel may be a little thicker and a little more steel and the embed allows you to have a weld point and you know, a ledger is against the wall. So you put the ledger against the wall. You weld, you weld a uh, bead weld to it. And then that way you can put that second deck on and, and put the building into a hundred percent office if you wanted to conversely, you take it out and there'll be knockouts on the first floor and it will be depressed into the ground four feet. So if you want to turn this into an industrial building, you excavate the the material out from the back side of it. It's four feet down, so a truck can go into it. You knock the panels out, put doors in, and now you have an industrial building. So it was like a transformer type design as far as the building goes, and that's that's something we look at every single time we build build a building. At least we're supposed to. Mm-hmm. You know, how can I make this most flexible as I can to make sure I can attract the and most. And how much more does
0: it cost, cost you to add that flexibility?
1: You know, I don't know if I have a dollar number for you, but it, it, it's surprisingly cheap. Yeah, because if you're if you're if you're forming a panel on a slab, and you've got a bunch of steel in there, and you got to put an embed and some other stuff, it's not—it's pennies on the dollar. It's—it just—it's irritating if you don't think about it afterwards. Like, oh, no, I should have done that. But hopefully, you remember where why you want to be flexible, because users change. I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't see the same type of users we see today. An e-commerce company um, has an intense amount of employees, so you need more parking. They, have, they want more office space, or they want this, or they want that. Things change over the last you know, 30 years I've been in the business. So just be prepared for it and try to do what you can to be ahead of it.
0: So fast forward, I'm at a company called MDL Group, and we were in a building that the co-founders built on Jones and Desert Inn. So one co-founder is a CPA, CPA firm's downstairs, the other one is... Carol from MDL Group. So MDL is upstairs. Okay. And we were bursting at the seams. We needed to move. We looked just like any other user. Well, what what would we lease if we were to lease? If we were to buy something, what would we buy at the time? It's probably in 2016. I want to say. Replacement cost on a building was about where we could just build it new. Mm-hmm. Like the only building we really looked at strongly for our size oh. and the, where we wanted to be, which was the Southwest, was off of Rainbow. But by the time we bought the building and did the TI we needed to for ourselves, we're back to replacement cost. So we shifted and said, well, let's build something. We bought this parcel where we are and we go and design this building and it's 11,300 square feet designed for us. And I could show you where, if we had to demise this thing, it's two walls. Hmm. And the little wisdoms that we learned in the, in the (laughs) recession around oh, man, I'd love to take the space, but if I try to demise it, I have to reroute all the HVAC, and the server is really expensive to get, make two server rooms out of one, and where would we put the break room and the how to create another kitchen, it, it would become prohibitive. And so that takeaway from your Shuffle Master building is applied here in this property too. That's great to hear.
1: Yeah. Good for you for remembering.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's what this whole thing's about, right? Right. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to hear it and then apply it. Yeah. Whatever happened with that Shuffle Master building? It's now part of the UFC. So I went through and another as well, right? It Valley was,
1: Gaming bought the, the Shuffle Master business. Did they change the interior at all for their use? You know, I was in there a couple of times. Not really. I haven't been there since UFC's been in there. So I'm, I'm sure it's quite different now. But um,
0: I just I think that's where they have what they call the Apex, if I'm not mistaken, which is like a little, like when COVID happened. And they couldn't do events in arenas. They, yeah. were, they filmed them there, so at least they could oh, okay. keep their fighters fighting and uh, broadcast to an, an audience and still keep the company going. Yeah, I want to say it's in that building, but I'm not 100% sure.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that, that location, the flexibility, the side, everything is a no-brainer. I mean, it's, I'm glad to see it's got a, a really good life now.
0: Yeah. And so 2015 came around. And things are starting to happen. And it, it was, uh, my business partner, Jared, got referred a client that needed a build to suit Now we're, you know, we know what we're doing now. We know what build to suits are. Absolutely. We're not just leasing space. <laughs> we're getting sophisticated. Uh, the company was 3G Productions, a unique company where on one hand they've got a warehouse use for speakers that they either manufacture or set. And then on the other hand, they wanted to incorporate some event space. So when their clients are doing like sound checks, instead of renting a stage somewhere, they could do it within a facility and then they needed offices. So this is very much a build to suit buildings like this don't exist in our market. Mm -hmm. So you, you have the assessment with the client or the, the, you know, the needs assessment, you come up with this criteria and they also you know, do you want to lease? Do you want to own? If you want to own The pathway to ownership is you buy an existing building or you develop a building. Not very many business owners have the capability to develop. Even if they do have the capability, it's not what they do every day. So something that professionals like us can do is find them a developer. And there are developers out there that, what you call it a merchant build? Is Mm -hmm. that what, where you say, okay, here's the client that needs to do a build a suit. They're going to hire you to do it because you have the development experience, you know all this stuff about panels and ledgers and all that, that I have no idea about. They don't have any idea about. Uh, and back then it was a lot less as far as who can even do this in the market. And Panatoni was certainly one of those companies that you take a client to, to see if this is something that fits on both sides. Sure. And so that was the first deal that I can remember that we did with Panatoni. And so we brought them to you, and I'm curious to hear your side of the story of the deal, but you know, our job is to create the pathway forward and to look at all the options, kind of like you talked about with Solitaire. Sure, you can go buy the land, company owner, but you're putting out all that money, yeah. which if you have it, great. Then you have to go and play developer, not just contractor. I mean, you have to go hire the architect, uh, hire the GC, make sure that they're playing in the sandbox together. Go find the, you talked about capital, you talked about debt, all that. Or you can just put it in Panatoni's care and let them handle all of it for you. So you can continue to run your business because another thing that happens is we learned this at MDL group because we're brilliant. We can build our own building. Someone here became the project manager. Yeah. And when you're doing that, you're not doing your job, so to speak. But, um, you talk now, tell me about the deal
1: from your side of the story. It, It was very interesting. Anytime a, a new project lead comes in the door, you have to quickly assess how real it is, because you got to figure, okay, how 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 much time should we spend on this? Because is is it going to happen? And that, that really comes down to who's involved. A lot of times, a broker. I mean, are they, they are a real broker who has got real leads, and we can we can you know assume that we have we need to spend time on this. It was quickly clear to me that they were a real deal. What was not clear to me was how we're going to build this building. And frankly, in retrospect, and I remember saying this at the time, going, the design got off the rails because it was not within my purview for two or three weeks. They kind of were off doing their own thing. Well, we're going to do this. And I think um, one of the gentlemen was an architect, remember? Mm -hmm. And so uh, architects' visions aren't always in line with what budgets and how we actually do things in the field. Because I got the design back and I was like, (laughs) oh my God, this is not going to work. So I remember sitting them down, and I say, um, "The cheapest building has a, has a few things. one of them it's rectangular. I don't need a lot of ventilations in the wall I don't need I need one plane on the roof. in other words, I don't need a lot of different roof heights on the top of the building. you got to make this much simpler. Whatever happens inside the shell, um, that's your business. We can figure that part out. We need to simplify the shell design. The site they got was com- so compelling, such a great site infill. Just the way that it was laid out, I was like, this is a they great had a really find. good
0: broker with the site selection. Yeah, it was
1: tremendous. I mean, I was, I, I was impressed. Yeah. And the price per foot was like, wow. Um, there were some, obviously some hurdles on the entitlement side. There's mm-hmm. a few neighbors not too happy with this. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot yeah, about but, that. But it got through it. Um, I think that one in particular, there's, there's some people you just like working with. And those two guys were great people. And they had a really cool business. I'm a musician myself, obviously, from our early conversation. So what they did for a living was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And the pictures of the people were there and what they going to do with it. But as I talked about before, flexibility and ability to turn this into a market building was always my top concern. Mm-hmm. If this is not rectangular, single, you know, everything else could be like, all right, it's got to be an office building at the end of the day. the way the way When you walk up the building, it looks like an office building. Yep. Even though it has a dock on one side, um, I did a building in Reno, a couple of buildings for Bali and, and another company where I put docks in the back. I hid them so well, nobody even knew it. And that's what I was looking for here is how can I make this look like an office building, but not be an office building? And I think we got there at the end, but it was, it took a lot of pushing and pulling to get, get where the building was going to be. And I, and I had to convince them at the end of the day, you as the tenant and slash future owner, you need to be fully engaged with me that we have the aligned interest. I can give you a better rent if I know the building could be converted to something else later. If you buy this, you need to know you could. Hey, you have an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. You can get out of it, and have a building that was normal, quote unquote, at the end of the day. Even though it was really unique space, I think at the end of the day, you walked in, it was a wow factor, really cool. They had a roof deck on top that he wanted. Yeah, but the process is always iterative. It always can be talking to make sure that whatever um, visions they had could be could be realized within brackets. You can't go off the rails cause you, you build buildings and there's some in town that I'm not going to name names who didn't think about the future. The buildings are so ill conceived.
0: Yeah. They, well, you can't be so. That was another one of my takeaways <laughs> from me back then. ill ill. There was uh, ill timed, ill conceived ill located.
1: Yeah. I remember that.
0: And you can deal with ill timed, but not ill conceived and ill located. Right. Yeah. Is that a Dugism? Yeah, that's a Doug-ism. I'm writing that down. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah you can you can uh the ill conceived is a death knell, but um but i think at the end of the day that build to suit was it was fun good people um and you know if you do a you do a project like that uh the brackets of a of an option a purchase option keep the developer in check you know because otherwise the market whims could come in and like mm-hmm. we had two years ago. Imagine the cap rates that people people are paying the option to purchase. The developers are going, oh, if I did this purchase option, I could sell for this much. But that's life.
0: Yeah, and so where we ended with that was you guys bought the land. You built the building. They were a tenant, and they had the option within the contract to buy it at within a window of time. Yep. And ultimately, they did. They went to their bank and got an SBA loan right, or whatever kind of loan they got and bought it from you, and then they owned it. Yep. And then as the story played out, they needed to sell the facility for business purposes and, and did and found a buyer which worked for them. So the whole flexibility piece that you helped them understand was important ended up being pretty important.
1: Yeah, yeah I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Good people. Yeah.
0: How about those for some, some takeaways anchored in deals?
1: <laughs> I like it.
0: So we talked about um, some Carl-isms. Enjoy the success of others.
1: Uh, no dead bodies. Is, is no jerks one of them too? 100%. What does that one mean? You don't employ jerks and you don't work with jerks. And if you do work with a jerk and you want to fire him, you can fire him. In other words, you have a client that you don't just don't want to deal with. You have permission, no matter what the cost is to the company, of not working with them. And that's a very, very important thing. We have that discretion to say, I don't want to work with this person. They're not a good guy So or a good woman or whatever. As I. Um, but we also internally, you, sh- you don't have jerks working for the company because it reflects on everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a tried and true, ism. I've seen it.
0: Sell two, keep one. Is that one too?
1: Yeah, I was, it was probably more in the early days where capital constraints led you to have to have that m- mantra. You, it's hard to keep buildings. Uh, Buzzo's was the king of it. I mean, Buzz was a he was a bombardier during the war. I mean, old fashioned guy, salt of the earth. Um, He's a legend in Sacramento. I mean, and legitimate legend, but his, he would get enough cash up to build a building, put a loan on it, take the money out from the building and go build another one. He just repeat this over and over and over again. And I think when, with Carl, you know, it was as a matter of, was there enough capital in our, in our deals to sell a building, get enough capital out to go build the next building mm-hmm. or two buildings, whatever. So it's, it's that mentality of recycling your capital all the time. You live or die, yield wise and return to you as a person, as a profession on leverage, which during 08 and 09 turned out to be quite a problem because if you're so highly leveraged, you had to put your capital back in. Mm-hmm. So we try to keep our leverage low now because we learned that lesson, but it makes a big difference in your IRR if you're highly leveraged because your cash is so small relative to your profits. But, you know, I think for us now we're the capital structure is such that we don't have to have that mentality as much, but it's certainly, Personally, it made sense to me to to be somewhat conservative and not get over leveraged. Yeah. What's another Carlism? Well, one time we were on a plane and I remember him saying, It's better to be down here wishing you're up there than up there wishing you're down here. Hold on. You're on a plane. Yeah, it's we're better to be ready to take off. Uh huh. It's better to be down here wishing you're up there than up there wishing you're down
0: here. Oh, is it like a delay in takeoff? Yeah. Because of weather.
1: Yeah. And so. Just yeah, we, okay, I got it. Yeah. That's perspective. That one stuck with me because I would in the airports people we just take off and I always remember, Yeah, not always that great, you know. Because you're up there top, hitting, you know, you're through the turbulence. It's like a calming,
0: it's like a calming thing. That's like calming wisdom. Yeah. You got all this anxiety because you, you go, we gotta go, we gotta go. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> Might not be the right time to go. Yeah.
1: Discretous. And <laughs> if you're up there that. and you wish you weren't <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's like 10 of them. of 'em. I've I've but the rest of them are kind of escaping me now, but um, I'll probably think of them. I don't know.
0: Well, you mentioned the Doug. I want to switch to Doug-isms. Okay. You mentioned one about um, not having gum on your shoes.
1: Yeah, that one I use a lot. I also, when I'm talking to a client, I say to them, trust me to be honest and trust me to be competent. If you're not both, it doesn't do you any good. So you got to be honest, but mm-hmm. if you're not competent, it doesn't do you good. If you're competent and you're not honest, it doesn't do you good. So I always put those together as my unquote sales pitch which I, really, I don't I try not to be a salesman mm-hmm. but those are two things I try to say to people Um and I do joke about low expectations a secret to life because in a lot of ways it's true you know if I always try to have a high bar but if I don't succeed at least I, you know I tried but you know it's it's more of a joke than a reality but so
0: again, I'm at a SIOR launch, hearing you. I think you're on a panel this time, maybe not presenting, and you made that comment. In a way, it was a joke, and yeah. your in your dryish humor. And I think you've said, you know, I tell my wife the secret to well, was the secret to happiness is to have low expectations. Right. It's pretty true. <laughs> yes. it is.
1: <laughs> Every day. Yeah. 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 Any other Doug isms? Oh, I probably have some. I, I don't know. Um, I'm king of puns too in my house. I do a lot of puns, <laughs> which uh, you know I think it's a sign of intellectual capability to yeah. be able to think of those quickly. But
0: you know. is that a, is there a difference with your puns and than the typical dad joke?
1: Oh, not at all. No, they're, they're same. same same stupid stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, nothing unique about it.
0: What about your dad? You mentioned your dad at the beginning. Did he have any sayings that he would always say that stuck with you?
1: Uh, he's <laughs> folksy humor folksy way of saying because his dad was Oklahoma. So was his mom and mom's from Texas. And, you know, and I haven't talked enough about my mom because, you know, my mom is a huge part of my life as well. But I think he was more folksy in the way he did things. He'd, he'd say house him ever, which I thought what, what a weird thing to say, but he just had more of a, what does that um, mean, it's kind of like, however, you know, like, I don't know why he put the words together, but it was like one of those silly things he used <laughs> to do. Um, but, you know, I, I he, he, Loved guys like, uh, you probably don't know Jerry Clower. He's a Mississippi, um, kind of a folksy type guy, like Andy Griffith, you know, Andy yep. Griffith like that. And so we, that, that just kind of that, um, just normal guy, you know, humor. And I'm not, not sexist at all. It's more like just, just, you know, that working humor that he used to bring to bear. And, you know, we distant conversations at the dinner table, he loved the, um, of the Roadrunner commercial I mean the Roadrunner cartoons mm-hmm. which kind of drove you crazy after a while because you know, the brand, you know Wiley Cody never caught him um, on the other side my mom I always thought I was smarter than my dad which is my dad was a professor my mom was a sharp one because she hmm. you know she grew up in an era where her dad said you can go to business school for two years and then that's it You know, she's he's not going to pay for college for her but she's you pay her in, pay her in Scrabble or some other board game trivia pursuit or whatever she's, Amazing what memory she has, and when, but she's the calming force in the family. She's always the um, never spoke ill of people. Just kind of bites her tongue. And just says you know, just lets you know what she's thinking. But she's not doing anything mean. She's just a very kind person. Um, and with my dad, I think that was a very very positive trait with her because my dad could be kind of volatile sometimes. But um, you know, she's she's by herself now, but she's she's still a pretty good driving force in the family. Everybody you know gathers around her. You know, just to, when we get together, but is uh, she up
0: north with you? She's in Reno. She moved yeah. there about
1: five years ago. But my my brothers in Davis, California; my other brothers in St. Louis, and my sisters in Columbia, South Carolina. So having us all together, we were just in this past Easter. I got in from mm-hmm. Europe Saturday and Sunday morning. They were at my house because we we're all there, you know, gathering for with, with my dad's stuff. So um, that that I mean, having a good, strong family. My 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 dad, mom, and dad were married for sixty six years. My Wife's family, um, mother and dad have been married for sixty plus. I can't remember the exact. So pretty unique having both sides married that long. You and Shirley are halfway there. Yeah, but it's a good example. Yeah, you know it's sometimes in marriage you just. I mean, they may always say, you know, she's not perfect, but she's perfect for me. I mean, that kind of thing. You just, you know, you count your blessings and say, you know, this is you're fully committed. You're ready to go. But my your parents tell you that. You know, you just have to kind of every day this. Wake up and count your blessings and keep going. Boom. So
0: that's a good place to go with an ending question. Okay. What advice would you give a new or young professional in Las Vegas, or I guess Reno, that was trying to make it?
1: Well, first of all, I think some of the things that you talked about with the Las Vegas community, you would think in some ways, if you're from outside the market, that would be much more um, disparate in the way that people do things. Um, because it's kind of a transitory market, relatively new, it's grown like crazy. a lot of new people come in. It's a remarkably cohesive brokerage community. I know some markets are much are backbiting, like uncomfortably backbiting, you know, where people talk smack about other people. Las Vegas is pretty unique in that regard. so I think I think t- the the point I'm saying in that is, get involved in the brokerage community organizations to your point NAOP, mm-hmm. and do DLI. And I still teach DLI classes in Reno. I, I, always do the first one, which is great because I get to do the big overview. And, and I like, I like that because um, selfishly, these are, these are my future clients. You know, they're going to look to me like, okay, I'm going to call Panatoni because I want something done. And that's great. I've created a, hopefully somebody wants to call me, but um, I think get involved in organizations. NAOP. you see the, you see, DLI, Naop, SOR, obviously, as you talked about, is pretty exclusive. But CCIM, just organizations that can help you learn. But I think the biggest thing is you have got to work hard. And um, it would, it could be a bad habit if a broker says, "I don't have a lot going on today, so I'm just going to kick it." Uh, that's not the way world works. You, I remember, just a broker or.
0: Is that true for, I mean, brokers are independent contractors. So in a way there's no boss telling them you have to do this or do that.
1: Well, I was just going to say when I, when I did better in school after, you know, after my, my daughter was born it's because I took my day and said, I'm at, I'm at the library from this time to this time, whether I thought I needed to study or not, I just did it. I think with a brokerage market or to your point, any job, if you're just there, you're going to find stuff to do that can make you, can move you forward. So spending the time to learn and to put the effort forward, find that mentor that you wanted, that you can learn from, both the good and bad way of doing things, because there are plenty of guys who've done things bad and you learn from it. There are people in my life that I've learned, like, oh, I'm not doing that. Um, so you can learn. There's takeaways
0: to apply, and then there's things that you learn, takeaways that you don't want to apply, right. like, specifically don't want to do it that yeah.
1: way. And always, always know you need to learn. I think as a young agent or a young broker or, or whatever profession you're in, you always have things to learn, especially in a pretty technical, and real estate's technical. I mean, yeah, I mean, people say, well, you're just a salesman doing transactions. Well, no, you, know, you got to be a knowledgeable salesman who knows what you're selling and why you're doing what you're doing, and, and just learning that, that different aspects of the business will pay dividends in the long run. So I'd say just effort, find mentors. Find, you know, find organizations that you can join, that you can be part of. They can help you network and learn um, and, and enjoy what you're doing. If you enjoy, enjoy it, it's going to be a really a bummer of a life. So make sure you like it.
0: You talked about getting kicked in the teeth. Like I, people approach me about a dozen times a year that want to get into commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. And that's a term that I use. Like you're going to get kicked in the teeth, punched in the stomach almost every day. Yeah for three years. <laughs>
1: That's probably right.
0: A lot of no's. <laughs> and then you start to feel like, okay, I have a kind of an idea of what's going on. Yeah. How does somebody go about finding a mentor? And if, if, and when they
1: find them approaching them to be a mentor. Yeah. I was always um, pleasantly surprised. The number of people wanted to reach out to me early in their career. And I, I, I was flattered. Sometimes I didn't have the time they wanted. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I couldn't just give up, you know, hours at hand. There was a few people that said, Hey, can I just grab a cup of coffee? and, and time is the greatest value asset you have, right? I mean, there's only so much time you have on Earth, and you got to be careful. But at the same token, it's okay to spend time with people and give back a little bit. So I think I think um, usually you'll know it when you walk into a room and see what, what people do and, and how they're, they're they're interacting with other people and what they're saying. You usually can figure out who you want to be your mentor, whether it's in your own company or somewhere outside, you know, that's in the business. So I think I think just being If you're bold enough to make cold calls, you should be bold enough to make a call to somebody you want to be, you know, find out some advice from. So I think that's part of it to me is take the initiative. And they may say no, keep on trying. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly where you were before. Yep. And if they say yes, so what happens when they say yes? What happens? Yeah. What advice? If someone's approaching you, as an example, or somebody else, and you say,
1: yes, I'll have coffee with you, I'd probably tell them what I just said to you about the organizations and, and how, how they go about their business. But I always, I always, I always assume that somebody who gets into the business, um, has either been tutored or somebody's told them expect the worst mm-hmm. because I, you know, I, I always think that a broker who's out of college better be on mom's dad's payroll for a while because it's going to be a rough couple of years. it's just the way the nature of the beast. Cause if, if they're have to survive on a on a commission schedule, they're going to do stuff they probably shouldn't be doing. And I'd say that in all due respect to what people's morals are, mm-hmm. but sometimes you're going to cut corners. Like I've got to pay my bills. I got to get this done. And you may not do the best thing for your client because you're trying to get a deal done. And that's where I think you just have to be wary of what constraints are in, in a brokerage commission, I environment, because that's what you're living on. Um, and if you're not prepared for that two or three year period, you talked about it's, it's not, going to be, it's not going to be really fruitful and you'll get angry about it, you know, because you'd be frustrated. Especially if you're in a place like that, It's a big house that has big disparity between the you know, newcomers and the people who have been in the business a long time and how they live. And you go, well, how do I get there? Well, I've been doing it 20, 30, 40 years. It takes a while. Mm-hmm. And that book of business you build up, and then pretty soon you got repeat and five, seven-year terms come up and you get renewals. Just things like that happen and over the time with your business. It takes a while to build it up, you know? patience, I guess, lack of better words.
0: Yeah. Great. Any other takeaways you want to share before we conclude? No, you pulled a lot out of me. So I think that's probably, <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I know that this is a time commitment. And thank you for taking the time to do this. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. It was my pleasure too. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.